did two years um, at dental school and then realised actually medicine interested me more. So I went into medicine uh, and spent five years at university, qualified and then decided that paediatrics was going to be my subject of choice. So I got through all my professional exams and was not far off becoming a consultant when unfortunately I suffered my brain damage from electroconvulsive therapy and at the age of 38 all my plans and all my hard work was suddenly came to a massive halt. It took me after my ECT five or six years to be able to read again so it took me a long time to begin to piece together the whole story. Medical error is purported to be the third leading cause of death in the U.S., killing a quarter of a million Americans annually. 23% of Europeans have been affected by medical error. Bad science embeds ME as medical harm globally, making millions missing. But less than 10% of medical errors are reported, because medical error is the secret many healthcare systems and governments work hard to hide. Wrong medication, wrong dose, amputate the wrong limb. I am Scott Simpson, host of Medical Error Interviews, and I talk with patients and families, physicians and advocates about medical error. They share secrets, stories, and most importantly, solutions. Medical Error Interviews is brought to you by my online counseling service, RemediesCounseling.com, a safe space for people affected by medical error, chronic illnesses, and other life matters. A note of caution, some may be distressed or triggered by the medical experiences of guests. Hello, humanity. I'm Scott Simpson, host of Medical Error Interviews podcast. In spite of our great science and medical advances in the last 100 years, what we know about how the body works is still embryonic, especially when it comes to our body's most complex organ, the brain, as Dr. Susan Cunliffe can attest. Dr. Cunliffe received numerous rounds of ECT, also known as shock therapy, each more powerful than the last, each designed to ensure Susan's brain was assaulted so hard it had a seizure. The brain tries to protect itself from the convulsions and seizures caused by electricity. So it takes higher doses of electricity to induce the brain seizures. When Susan's cognitive ability decreased after ECT, her symptoms were interpreted as worsening depression, not ECT-induced brain damage. And so she was given more ECT, causing more brain damage. Psychiatry calls this treatment. Others call it barbaric. But these are the facts. Doctors don't understand very much about the brain. For example, pharmaceutical manufacturers market antidepressant drugs on the idea that depression is a chemical imbalance in your brain. Turns out that's not true. There is no evidence for a chemical imbalance as a cause of depression but that doesn't stop thousands of unwitting doctors from prescribing them. Doctors definitely don't understand how electricity impacts the brain. Physicians don't know how to treat the brain on any level, 
beyond throwing powerful psych meds at it. And they haven't studied traumatic brain injury, so they don't know what symptoms to look for or how to recognize signs of injury. Yet they are allowed to put electricity through people's brains. Psychiatry, that embarrassing discipline of medicine that operates outside the usual rules of evidence-based science or prioritizing patient safety, religiously defend their practice of jolting the brain with electricity so hard it causes the brain to have a seizure. Like religion, it is based on faith, not facts. In this episode, physician Susan Kunleth gives an insider's view of the UK medical system where their own data shows one in five ECT patients experiences severe and permanent brain damage. But that doesn't stop powerful psychiatrists from continuing to electrocute people's brains and call it medical care. Listen to find out who Susan found to help her brain heal and what she's doing to heal a broken medical system. You can support the podcast by subscribing on iTunes, Podbean, Spotify, and all of the other podcast platforms. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron. Premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast interviews. Simply go to patreon.com slash medical error interviews to become a monthly patron of the podcast. And if you need the support of an experienced counselor for your own encounters with medical error and or living with a complex chronic illness, you can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com. Now, here's my interview with Dr. Susan Kunleth and a word of warning as always that some folks may be impacted by Susan's experiences with the healthcare system. Great, thanks Sue. So I, I always start with the first question for all my guests, so it's the same for you. Where did you grow up and what was your childhood like? Uh, I grew up in Yorkshire in a small village called Bramhope. It was a traditional family there. Um, dad out at work, mum at home. I got very involved in um, the scouting movement all the way through to going to university. And yep, so it was very simple, very normal childhood. Um, and then I did two years um, at dental school and then realised actually medicine interested me more. So I went into medicine uh, and spent five years at university, qualified and then decided that paediatrics was going to be my subject of choice. So I got through all my professional exams and was not far off becoming a consultant when unfortunately I suffered my brain damage from electroconvulsive therapy. And at the age of 38, all my plans and all my hard work um, was suddenly came to a massive halt. Okay, so there's the teaser. So let's unpack that a wee bit. Uh, so how come it was recommended that you receive ECT? Well, I, looking back in my notes, I think it was quite shocking that I was ever offered it in the first place. 
um, I was in um, a coercively abusive marriage and my first psychiatrist had said, you know, you've got to get away from your husband, which I did do, but I wasn't supported out of that marriage in any way. And I ended up back with him, ended up with a different psychiatrist. Obviously, I'd been in that marriage for what, 20 years, felt very trapped, felt very helpless because um, I think coercive abuse is very difficult. You, you aren't being hit. You're having nothing physical done to you. But the outcome of it all is, is just the same. You live in constant fear. You don't know how to be, behave. You do everything to avoid being told off or whatever. Um, and you're just living a life on eggshells. And it just all became too much. So I found myself an inpatient. And it's... Only it took me after my ECT five or six years to be able to read again. So it took me a long time to begin to piece together the whole story. And I think it was only a couple of years ago when I really completely, I think, understood uh, what happened to me. And what I hadn't realised until then was that I went down the usual course of seeing as psychology wasn't being offered, I got onto the antidepressants. And I had this vivid memory of um, being put on one antidepressant and I can't remember what it is now, I should have looked it up, but it sent me completely manic. But as a doctor, I, I had that recognition that I'd suddenly overnight just couldn't sleep and I wanted to clean and I just couldn't rest. So it was quite a frightening experience, but I just brought, took myself off the tablets and I came straight down again. Um, and what I realised was, reading through my notes fairly recently, was that I was in hospital and um, I've now read in my notes that there's a conversation between myself and a doctor which says that we want to try these antidepressants. And it clearly states in my notes, please, please, please don't put me on those because this is what happened last time. And that is completely and utterly ignored. And I end up on them. And obviously it sends me manic. And then I'm just put onto a cocktail of drugs. And from what I read now, a lot of those drugs cause a lot of problems. And I think that was my downfall into getting ECT. You know, they hadn't dealt with the psychological problems. So it didn't matter what treatment anybody gave me. Unless I was helped out of my marriage, I was never going to get better. So I ended up having electroconvulsive therapy purely because nobody decided to look at the cause of my emotional distress. So... Um, and, you know, that's completely destroyed my life in many ways. Wow. So uh, they ignored that you had this adverse reaction to the first antidepressant, put you on another antidepressant. You put me on the same antidepressant. Oh, the same one. Yeah, because I, I can't remember the name of it. But yeah, that's what, and I hadn't realized this till a couple of years ago. I had not realized that they had actually put me back onto this antidepressant. And that actually I said in my notes, please don't put me onto this antidepressant. And then of course I'm putting on a whole load of other tablets like lithium and, you know, just 
a whole range of tablets and then obviously you're seen as not getting any better well of course I wasn't going to get any better because my situation is now 10 times worse because you know you're now living with somebody who's saying to you oh well you know if you leave me now um, nobody will let you have the children because everybody knows what you'll do you'll kill yourself you'll kill the children so by being given that psychiatric diagnosis by being labeled as somebody who was insane um it made escaping from an abusive marriage even harder and that label then became a, a control and also you know a controlling factor over me because you feel in such a vulnerable position and you know so it's it's a really difficult place to find yourself so not only controlled by the psychiatrist and the medical institution, but also controlled by your ex-husband. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so what was your experience of the ECT therapies? And how frequently did you have them? Well, I was given two lots. And again, obviously, one of the issues for me is that I suffered really, really, really bad brain damage and that's the only word I can describe from it when I read in my notes though it's quite obvious from my notes that straight after the first one um, I'm sort of saying things like oh oh, my memory's gone and I really don't feel well in fact I feel a lot worse um, and after my fourth one I'm saying this really isn't right I want to speak to the consultant I don't want any more you can just see each time they give the ECT that my brain is being blown to bits with each episode. And not only are they not monitoring for, you know, formally monitoring that they're not filling in a form that should be filled in, they say, after every two um, sessions. There seems to be this lack of communication between the nurses and the doctors who are giving it so my nursing notes are really really quite damning really because you couldn't have any more complaints about memory loss not being able to recognize people's faces and either that's not communicated to the doctors or the doctors are just completely and utterly ignoring it so i had um i had initially 11 i think it was 11 sessions what is Again, fascinating is that I don't remember any of this, but what is written in my notes by the end of those that lot of sessions is the fact that this patient cannot remember what it is that was causing her distress. So again, that's really quite frightening because I'm then sent home into exactly the same environment, but this time I'm not aware of why I'm there and what the problems are so it's almost like I have to go through it and relearn what's happened to me between sessions I had six months between sessions and again I'm not offered any support psychologically any counseling nothing and I think one of the issues is that you've got these doctors who are giving electroconvulsive therapy who really don't understand the brain they haven't studied traumatic brain injury. They don't know what they're looking for. They don't know the signs or the symptoms. So this is what a lot of us find 
And it stuns me that people can be allowed to put electricity through people's brains that don't actually understand the side effects of what they're doing. And I've never come across in medicine a treatment like that. So what I now believe, having suffered my brain injury, then fortunately getting neurorehabilitation, is that I was making all these complaints about what was happening to me and how I was feeling. And what I was describing was what's called neuronal fatigue. So not only did, you, did I have memory problems, but you get your executive functioning is damaged, your processing speeds are damaged. And what was happening was that I would wake up in the morning and I would feel all right as much as all right could be. And then suddenly my brain would close down and it's unable to function and you're unable to feel. And they took that as a worsening depression. So I then find myself back in hospital and then I'm now giving ECT, a second lot of electroconvulsive therapy, not to treat a depression, but to treat the brain damage that they've already caused. And I think one of the horrific things that I have recently discovered, the more reading I've done, is that unlike any other treatment that I know, um, you tend to have the same dose given all the way through. But electroconvulsive therapy, they put a shock into your brain and it causes your brain to fit. Now, our brains don't like fitting. And when I was a doctor, you know, we did absolutely everything to stop people fitting. And for folks um, who aren't familiar with that term fit, uh, that's like a seizure? A convulsion, yeah, a seizure or a convulsion. So our brain really doesn't like to have a seizure, a convulsion, a fit. So it resets itself so that it makes it less likely to have another seizure. So it makes it harder so what you find is as you progress through your course of electroconvulsive therapy, the next time they give you a dose, you often find that they don't, you don't have a fit. So you've already had one charge, so they're then up the charge and you'll have another dose in the same treatment. So you can actually end up having way more surges of electricity through your brain than you actually realize but the dosing on all of this is completely and utterly um what's the word it's just pie in the sky it's picked out of the air there's no science behind it and when you read the um electroconvulsive therapy handbook which is written by the royal college of psychiatrists they've decided if you don't have a fit then what we'll do is we'll times the, the, the last charge that caused you to have a fit, we'll multiply it by one and a half times. So, and then that's the amount of charge we'll give you that this time. So each time you have a fit, you're getting more electricity passed through your brain. And what is really stupid about multiplying something by one and a half times, they know that the bigger the charge, the more damage they're doing to you. So instead of being ultra cautious as your dose gets higher, you're actually getting a much bigger increase in your doses as you get higher. So for example, 
you know, if you were on, I started off on 80 millicooms caused a fit. By the end of it, I was on 700 millicooms. So it's, I don't know any other treatment that is so blase and there's no science behind it. It's just they've decided that one and a half is how they're going to work out how they increase your dose. I wasn't consented about any of that. Um, and, and what you see is that in my second course, as I said, the dose goes up exponentially almost. Um, and it's almost as if the charge that they give you, they don't direct it anywhere. There's, there's no particular place. You can't control the electricity. But what you see is that not only is my memory getting worse, but towards the end, my hands are shaking. I'm, they keep commenting that she's over sedated. She's sleeping all the time. Well, that's because they're concussing me constantly. And, um, and by the end of it, they did pause for the last one because they did wonder, they did just wonder if my problems were my ECT, but three days later they gave me the last shock. And you can see from the areas of my brain that were affected, obviously to me, the only way I can explain it is it was as if the bigger the dose, the deeper it's, the deeper it passes into your brain and the more parts of your brain it affects. So I was basically left after I had another 10 doses. That was 21 in total. And there were two, two every week. So I went from being a doctor who was able to run a pediatric intensive care unit and be in charge of the pediatric department overnight. And by the time they finished treating me, uh, I couldn't recognize people's faces. I couldn't read. I couldn't count money out. I couldn't do my kids two times tables. I'd forgotten huge amounts of my vocabulary. So I had to, if I wanted to use the word house, I would have to try and explain what I meant when I wanted to use the word house. My memory was shot to bits. So I couldn't remember, you know, anything about my, my career, my kids being born. But it wasn't just that part of my memory that was affected. It also affected my memory for the immediate so it was what i'd just done a few seconds before and what i needed to do so i'd walk into a room and think gosh what have i come in here for and i have to say that the number of times people have tried to be nice to me and say oh i know what it's like to forget it's the most unhelpful things that people can ever say to you. And I never did it, but it was so tempting to just punch them in the face and say, you have absolutely no idea because you can't imagine what it's like. Uh, I remember writing a seven page letter to my friend in Germany, going to sleep. And I woke up the next morning and thought, oh, I must write that letter to my friend, went to open the right pad of paper to find that I'd written it. You lose the ability to navigate. I struggled to, I don't know if I've said, but I was punch drunk as well. So my hands shook. I used to fall over in public. I had slurred speech. And I used to walk into door frames and my memory was so bad. I actually didn't know if I'd always walked into door frames. So, and, and that's, and, and also there's other horrible things that happen, like your memories are so complex 
And I remember going on holiday with my kids and I remember saying to myself, I know I've enjoyed today, but I'd realised that I wouldn't be able to remember that I enjoyed it. And you don't realise that if you remember something, you bring that back, the emotions with it. And so many people say that they lose memory for their emotions. And so trying to start up relationships with people was very hard because you couldn't, you could feel the love when you were with them, but you forgot how that love felt when you weren't with them. So you had to train yourself to say, oh yes, I love that person. And it, when you read the consent forms, I was told that this treatment was safe. And I was told that the only symptoms I would get was a bit of a headache and perhaps some short-term memory loss. And even now, they just give no idea to patients that you can end up like this. And it's not something that happened 16 years ago to me and isn't happening now. I know other people in the UK that have had it within the last four years who've all had the same issues that I have had. So they're very common to a lot of people you know, who, who do suffer brain damage. So yeah, so that fairly tore my life apart, really. Yeah, no doubt it would. It's just really shocking to hear sort of the breadth and depth of damage and impact that it's had in your life. It'd be hard for people to really sort of imagine what it's like to lose your short-term memory, like when you go into another room, to lose your autobiographical memory, like yeah children and your family as well as all of that sort of cognitive uh, career information that you have yeah. uh, in chess. Mm. and it also it also is really hard to learn new information it was very hard to learn new information you know so it's and, and I think that's very hard for people to understand I mean obviously I, I in the last sort of 10 years I have made huge progress but what people don't understand, and I'm still, I sometimes do struggle with it, is that, for example, trying to relearn how to use a computer, just because somebody had showed me how to switch it on, 10 minutes later, I've probably forgotten that. And so it's very hard to learn, relearn new things. And I don't think, and I think people get frustrated and you, you sort of try and explain that to people and that's a really hard concept. And I think... I think one of the reasons why I have, I, I say, always say to myself that I always like to look at the positive things in my life. And I have been extraordinarily lucky, which sounds strange, but two years after my injury, when I'd had an awful two years, and again, this is what all BCT victims face, our psychiatrists deny our injuries, they cover them up, they tell our relatives that, you know, we've got even worse mental health problems, you get these horrendous diagnoses. I walked into my GPs one day and found that I'd been got a, a diagnosis of personality disorder written on my, you know, my um, patient screen. And it's really, really, really hard because whatever emotions we show which is perfectly understandable when you've suffered so badly and people are ignoring you if we show an emotion to a relative or show an emotion in front of a doctor we're just labeled as that being part of our mental health problems 
and then you get more frustrated and again I remember after my second lot of electroconvulsive therapy I remember my parents sitting in a room at my house and I'd got this new community psychiatrist and I was saying to him look you know I wake up every morning I feel all right you know trying to explain why I'm not depressed I, I, I like to put my makeup on I like to make myself look nice and then I was trying to explain this, this, what was happening to me that I didn't understand then about my brain shutting down and suddenly you just feel emotionless. Um, but I didn't think it was depression. Um, and he just looked at me and said, oh, well, that just shows you've got really low self-esteem. So I blew my top and I ran out and I jumped in the car. Well, how does that look to me? You, you can imagine the conversations that were had, that, that, that you know were had over me and, and my parents now see it and you know my parents recognize probably at that time they were being led by the psychiatrists but that story is not unusual but I think what changed things for me was that I did push and push and eventually got to be seen by a neuropsychologist and I had tests done and was eventually given an appointment with him. And I remember going to see him and I remember thinking, I'm gonna come out from here humiliated, just like everybody else has humiliated me. And he sat down and we had a chat and he just looked at me and said, um, yeah, he said, uh, you've got brain damage from electroconvulsive therapy. And that moment changed my, it changed my life because it was the first time anybody had listened to me for years. Um, and he dealt with all the issues that, you know, I had that had caused my depression or I don't even like to call it depression. It was, you know, it was my emotions that were perfectly appropriate for what I was going through. So I think what he did was he sort of demedicalized my distress. And he allowed me to believe that, you know, I could get over this. I wasn't this incurable depressive. So within five or six months of seeing him, I got out of my marriage and I got myself of all my antidepressants. And I was actually in a really terrible place in terms of not having any friends, having this brain injury. But I think I remember saying to myself, I, it sounds very morbid but I remember thinking oh because my parents at that time didn't understand and I remember thinking to myself if I die today nobody will come to my funeral but I thought you know what I've got through today and I've managed today and I know I've done really well and it was by being able to tell myself things like that and to keep myself going and I think I was so frightened of ever getting back to see a psychiatrist that I chose to look at the positives in everything I'd got and not focus on the negatives for fear, for actual fear of ending up back with the psychiatrist again. And it, you know, it was a very slow steps forwards, but that's how I've, that's how I chose to deal with it, to just realize that I accept who I was, accept the changes that had happened to me and just start being proud of everything I achieved and if that meant I just managed to get my three kids to school in the morning 
and get them home from school and feed them, then even though that wasn't being the doctor that was running a neonatal intensive care unit, that was quite an amazing feat for somebody who had got brain damage. And so that's, yeah, that's, 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 that's how I dragged myself out of it. Wow. So there's a certain level of acceptance going on to the situation, but also having at the ready these counters to counter the automatic negative thoughts and replace them with positive thoughts. Yeah, I think that took a long time. That took me quite a long time to do. And um, my neuropsychologist, I had him for a couple of years. And as I said, I think he was very empowering because he said to me, you know, I think you've got the strength to get through through this. Um, and I, it's, it wasn't easy. It wasn't easy to start. I mean, I couldn't, even, I couldn't even pick the phone up to talk to my parents. And I think that was quite a pivotal day was when I understood that the reason why I, I couldn't pick it up and talk to my parents was because they would often ask me questions that because of my brain injury, I couldn't, um, I couldn't um, handle. So I had to start developing strategies. Um, and so when I eventually did pick the phone up when my parents phoned, because I didn't really understand my brain injury then, but I'd, I'd start developing my own strategies. And so I said to my parents, okay, I can talk today, but I can only talk about this and nothing else. But when I'd had that conversation with my parents and succeeded in that, I realized that that strategy worked. And that's how I've sort of taken my life forward. So it's all about, it is all about developing an understanding of, of, of brain injury. And I was very lucky to get that from my neuropsychologist. And it breaks my heart when I think I'm about the only ECT victim I know in the UK or internationally that has had that input. And that input was very simple. You can't ever recover from brain injury, but I have to strategize and plan my entire life. And you know, you, you have to take the good days and the bad days, but having an understanding of my head injury is pivotal about being able to move forwards in my life. And I can't get closure because we don't get acceptance from our psychiatrists, what they've done to us, but being able to move forwards and get myself out of that rut is really, has been really good for me. And I, I hope um, that, you know, as you, as you, you've seen me on Twitter, I know that, you know, I, I make this great guy and I, Andy won't mind me mentioning him because he to me is just amazing. I, I met him 18 months ago down in London. He'd had ECT, was having a dreadful time, you know, thought life really wasn't worth it. Hadn't met anybody like me or, you know, everything was being denied by him. But, sorry, by his family and his psychiatrist. And he's turned his life around. And I think it's just, you just need one meeting with somebody to realize that your living, your lived experience is the truth. And, you know, and, and so to me, I look at Andy now and I see Andy has pulled himself 
out of what seemed to him to be a just you know just wanted to end it all just because he couldn't get an understanding or any acknowledgement of what he suffered so I think he's great because I look at Andy now and I see Andy putting things on Twitter that you know makes me laugh he makes me laugh and you know and it's just it's just it's sad that people have to suffer so much all for the sake of an apology or some neuro rehabilitation yeah it's incredibly powerful how validating somebody's illness and experience of illness can be just as how powerful it is to be invalidated about your symptoms yeah. uh, just backing up to your career so here you've got this great career you worked really hard for it high level cognitive cognitively challenging you start down these ECTs so what happened to your medical career well it's completely it's completely come to an end uh, again whilst I've been sort of looking into all these issues I found um, a letter from 2009 which is five years four years after my ECT finished and it basically says you know she's this doctor's got no recognition no recollection really of medical knowledge and she's never going to be able to work again so it's you know it really has put a cap on my career but again I in some ways they gave ECT to the wrong person. It's taken me a long time to get to where I am. And I've done huge amounts of reading around ECT, more along the standards and the failings um, in sort of accreditation. I'm not so good at reading all the evidence that's out there. That's a bit too high powered for me. I've had a lot of validation, especially in the last sort of three or four years, um, because I've been speaking out for about the last 10 years and I'd do the odd newspaper article here or radio interview and never got anywhere. And at first that was really disappointing. But then again, I recognize that almost each time I spoke out about something, it just got me noticed a little bit. I did a lot of writing to all the government bodies expressing my serious concerns about failings within the UK um, ECT units um, and it came to absolutely nothing. Um, but obviously my medical knowledge has helped me, you know, as I said, really study these standards and I've had that because I've had that background, I think I found it quite appalling, quite shocking what I've found. So it's it, it's been very important for me to, to keep doing this, but I struggle to get anywhere. But then um, I think it's helped me in that, I suppose I've got perhaps a little bit more credibility than just a your average mental health patient. And I don't mean that in any way derogatory to you know my fellow victims because I shouldn't be given more credence because of who I am but I think it has opened a few more doors then I was really lucky Prof John Reed, who's done quite a lot of looking at the evidence of ECT invited me to speak at King's College Maudsley debate nearly probably two years ago and we debated electroconvulsive therapy 
And that was a big challenge for me. In fact, I, I actually had to lie to say that I was capable of talking to 200 people because I, I haven't done it for years. But um, it was great to be given that opportunity. And I, I walked in there and I just thought to myself, you know, they're all, a lot of them were students. So I thought, you know, they're just like my kids. That was great to be given that opportunity. It was and, and we won. So that was really nice. Um, and that's how I got onto Twitter. That was my next step. And then I've done, a, I did a podcast about that. I was then invited to speak at Drop the Disorder uh, last year, which is a group of psychologists and interested mental health patients uh, and, and carers. And it's all about not labeling people and looking at their emotional responses to reactions so I entitled my talk escape to sanity and then over the last four or five months whilst COVID has disadvantaged a lot of people I've been lucky enough to form a working group with Prof John Reed, Prof Peter Kinderman and Lucy Johnson and we are actually beginning to make inroads into I hope changes within ECT and so again that's just been something that's very empowering to me because I'm now sort of back into an area of med you know into medicine something that I worked for so again I suppose it's less of a loss for me because I'm using my medical skills once again in a very different way but I suppose in some ways perhaps it was meant to be I'm not religious but you know it's just it's better to look at what I can do now and perhaps an opportunity to bring change in different ways um so yeah so it's 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 getting quite exciting at the moment actually because it's been quite hard I think for um ECT victims because as you know ECT started 88 years ago and you know, many ECT victims are now have now died without ever having an apology. So it's been very hard to watch people almost skip ahead of us to be noticed. So you know, um, whatever you suffer from a medical, you know, medical harm is horrendous. But it's been very hard to watch people get recognition and us being getting left behind. And I think a lot of that is because we are so injured by it and so traumatized by it that people really can't cope with with bringing it, you know, bringing it to people's attention. So it feels good now that hopefully, you know, we're going to bring some change. Yeah, it really sounds like you're making meaning out of your horrible experience. And I also hear elements of post-traumatic growth yeah I'm not quite sure what you mean that but um I think um I think I've yeah I, if, if you what what would what do you mean by that <laughs> and then I can clarify that uh it can come in different forms it can be a sense of uh, strength and resiliency that you didn't realize you had before it could be greater relationships with other people could be affecting change on a more of a social societal scale yeah yeah i think it's as i said i think it's i think i've i i suppose i've been as i said i always think i've been very lucky and fortunately 
I've not had the financial worries that I know a lot of people with ECT have had. So of course, that's one less thing for me to to have to you know worry about. So I suppose I have had the opportunity to focus on it on making a difference. And yeah, you're right. I feel it's it's been a strange it's a strange time because I think you lose your independence. You do become very lonely. Um, I think because it's a very misunderstood illness. I think I see a lot on yours about is it ME, and um, and I think people don't understand it. So you don't get the understanding or the sympathy that you might get if you had a more physical illness. But yeah, it feels good to be doing this because it, is make, it makes sense out of something that's happened. And if in the end you can bring change, it almost makes it worth it because your suffering has hopefully stopped the suffering of, 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 you know, of others in the future. You know, and, and all I can do is hope. But, but I also think that I've learned that I don't get my hopes up of ever bringing change. Because I think the first couple of times you get excited and you think, oh, yes, I've got this newspaper article. And then you realise that it's not brought any change at all and you give up. So I sort of keep dipping into it and then dipping out of it. But it's been sort of like slowly climbing a staircase really and it's you know you, you climb back three steps and then you don't do anything for a while and I sort of feel though that we are beginning to get that momentum and, and moving forwards there doesn't seem to be any stopping uh, now um, we are getting I mean I don't know if you want me to talk a little bit about what we've achieved which has been quite dramatic in the last few weeks or I also I know that you've done an interview with uh, with Mesh with somebody from the Mesh um, victims, and I think that there's one of the one of the sad things about electroconvulsive therapy, and I think one of the shocking things for me was that my ECT was given in 2005, and when I eventually realised what had happened to me, and they'd lied in my consent form and see the negligence in my case. I found that we had had guidelines produced by the National Institute for Clinical Excellence in 2003, and they produced these best practice principles. And I compared those to my care and I thought, well, you've not followed those, you know, those, those guidelines. So therefore you have to be negligent. And I think, I think that's been shocking is that they can produce these best practice guidelines that they spend millions of pounds doing, but they're not enforceable. And I think that's been shocking. And I think that, that they've just done a review for MESH in the UK. And I have to say that while some people criticise what the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynaecologists have done, they put the Royal College of Psychiatrists to shame. The Royal College of Psychiatrists have had 17 years after a big review to bring changes and they failed to embrace these nice guidelines. They've created a sham ECT accreditation service. And if I said to you, you're gonna have ECT and you were offered to have it at a unit that's been accredited by the Royal College of Psychiatrists or a unit that wasn't accredited as just a member of the public, what would you go for? Of course, I'm going to trust the accredited. 
And so what would you be expecting from this accredited unit? Standard operating procedures, informed consent. Yeah, and what we know is that in 2000, there's always this debate, isn't there, that you hear, oh, it helps me, oh, it harms me, oh, it's life-saving, oh, it's brain-damaging. I've chosen not to focus on that. I think what we need to be looking at is, are we giving it safely? And that's what this should all be about. People quote different statistics, but there was an interesting statistic that I uncovered that was on the Royal College of Psychiatrists' own website. And in 2015, they did a patient survey. And this survey said that 18.75% of patients are left with severe stroke permanence memory loss. Now that's one in five patients. And let's face it, you're setting, you're giving them, you're giving a force to the brains is causing those problems. So in my mind, effectively, you're giving, you know, nearly one in five people are suffering permanent effects of brain damage. And yet you never, ever, ever see the Royal College quoting their own patient survey. So yeah, you're right. If you're, if you're going for this accredited unit, you would expect consent to be there. Well, we know that the consent forms sit there and they discuss about uh, chemical imbalances in the brain. There's no theory as to how ECT works. And if you take that one step back, the Medicine Health Regulator Authority should never have allowed ECT machines to be continued to be used because you can only license a machine for which you know what its mechanism of action is. So it should never have been licensed in the first place. So, yeah, so the consent, they really don't discuss the risks. Uh, they minimise them. Many of them say it's the safest form of treatment given under anaesthetic. Uh, so informed consent is not there. They don't, their standards say that you have to consent, but they don't look at the quality of the consent or information that you give out. And the Royal College's own ECT unit, which they've just redone, again, is not adequate or correct. So they're not, so consent, they're basically accrediting units that are giving inadequate consent. So that's the first thing. And you would think if one in five patients were of being affected with severe stroke permanent memory loss, that you would be monitoring for those effects because as the Royal College say, of course, any treatment that has serious side effects, just like any treatment, we are monitoring for them. Well, when I started digging into their standards, monitoring for brain damage is not essential for accreditation. So they've been accrediting units that were not monitoring for brain damage which you would not get away with if you were giving chemotherapy and you didn't do bloods to, you know, to look for side effects, known side effects, you would be sued to high heaven. And in their newsletters, they were even stating year on year 
that monitoring for brain damage or cognitive effects is the most commonly missed standard in accreditation. So uh, units are being accredited throughout the UK where they're not doing the basics of ensuring consent or you know, monitoring for brain damage. But what is worse is that these standards have been written in a way that unless you really delve into them, all the hospitals adamantly believe that an ECT certificate is ensuring best practice. And actually it's not. And I went to the college last year um, because nobody was listening nice. The National Institute of Clinical Excellence aren't interested, the Care Quality Commission, NHS improvements. Nobody wants to listen to the fact that these standards are absolute shams. So I decided to go along to the college last year and I pointed out and gave them all the evidence off their own website as to what their failings were. And I heard nothing. They've got a new president and I wrote to him uh, just as he started in July and I highlighted all the failings and he had the audacity to write back to me to say, oh, we've made monitoring um, compulsory now. And I thought, oh, gosh, you know, I've brought change. That's really amazing. I've done something. But then I went and looked at the standards and they're using a test which is the MM, mini mental state examination. And when I looked in their ECG, ECT handbook, which tells you how to give ECT, it basically says that that test is the wrong test used in the wrong place. So effectively, it's completely and utterly useless. So they've now said, they've now you know, counteracted my argument that testing isn't compulsory. Well, they've made it compulsory, but with a totally meaningless test. So it's completely useless again. They, he wrote to me and said, oh, well, we've made rehabilitation. Um, you know, we're offering rehabilitation. And I thought, oh, fantastic. Um, and again, they've um, made it not compulsory. So instead of spending 16 months bringing improvements and improving their consent form, they've put another one out which is useless they spent 16 months creating more of a sham and that's what i think is really shocking is that there should be years on from mesh implants and i just hope that you know mesh doesn't go the same way but from what i can see is that the royal college of gynecologists have acted totally differently they have produced an amazing consent form which I gave to the Royal College and said do this and that'd be fantastic and more recently have you heard of the Cumberledge inquiry so this is a bit of a game changer for us because I think it's two or three years ago the government realized that they announced in, in, in Parliament that they recognized a lot of patients were being harmed by drugs uh, you know or mesh implants so they held an inquiry Baroness Cumberledge held this inquiry and they spoke to hundreds of patients who'd been harmed by three medical treatments and it was reported on um, probably about four weeks ago and it really did cause an uproar in Parliament people were absolutely disgusted because there were all these horror stories and it, they were all mainly women who've been harmed 
and they've had their stories denied they don't get the help that they need but on the back of that the royal college have, has, have issued a really an amazing apology and they've published it um, and they put all these safety measures in place and they've set up clinics to support women so I wrote and asked if we could have an apology like that and could the victims come and speak and they've refused to do anything so the Cumberledge should be in the UK to for all doctors and the psychiatrists are just you know battening down their hatches and continuing with the harming patients denying that we're injured but i think in the end it's going to be them that are going to look completely foolish because they're starting up a parliamentary group which we're now applying to get on which you know is looking at how to prevent incidents like this and instead of the royal college jumping on the back of cumberledge and saying oh yeah right this is our opportunity to change they're just doing completely the opposite and yeah, I, I think it's going to make them look really quite, well, I don't know, unprofessional should be the word that I will use. Uh, I'm curious, were there any patients on any of these groups that created the guidelines? They do, they do have patient, they do have patients on depending on what guidelines you're talking about. When they produce nice guidelines, they did interview a lot of patients. And I think one of the interesting things is that, you know, you've got all these regulatory bodies in different countries and both NICE, which is National Institute of Clinical Excellence, who look at what treatments can be used, you know, and what provisos need to be set. So they've said if you want to give ECT, it's only for short term relief. They said that we needed more research. Well, 17 years down the line, we don't have research. They said the lack of evidence for safety and efficiency. They said that, you know, you must be offering people psychology. They said that was huge patient differences, you know, on interviewing all these patients. So in some hospitals, they're using, I think, something like 18 times more than other hospitals. So that means that some hospitals are probably offering safer treatments so it looks a bit more like doctor preference and you know and they've said things like we recognize you know that patients have said that there's a lot of harm done so we need to improve consent and and you know we must you must monitor and stop it at the first signs of, of danger so that 2003 study they interviewed a lot of patients there was a big you know a lot of yeah injured victims and the Royal College does have a patient panel. And I did apply to go on it. But I think as I've alluded to before, psychologically so many of, of us have been damaged that I wasn't sure how healthy it would be for me to expose myself going into, I suppose, effectively the lion's den. I think I'd feel a lot more confident now because I'm working with people who are there supporting me and legitimizing what I'm saying. But I suppose in a lot of these, they always listen to the patients who found it was helpful. Now, to me, you don't learn anything about your procedures from people going, oh, yeah, that's brilliant. Anybody who truly believes in patient safety 
you know, they should actually be going out and courting patients like me. And that, that's why in the end I went to the Royal College because I thought, well, you know, you need some honesty here. And, and I almost feel I've, I've hold the, held the college accountable. I've, held, I've presented them with a dossier of failings, but all the failings are all traceable on their own website. They're all their own admissions, which is what makes it quite crazy to me. It's like hiding in plain sight. So, yeah, they do, but it's who you ask. Depends on the answers that you get. You know, consent shouldn't be about hiding the risks because I didn't consent to have my life blown to bits and, and completely ripped to bits. You know, no doctor has that right to make that decision for me. I had a right to say, my life's really bad. I'm depressed. Yeah, do you know what? I think I'll have electricity pushed through my brain so that might give me short-term relief, but there's a risk that I could end up permanently brain damaged and never able to work again. Yeah, and, and I think you'll find it all over Twitter that they really, once you, once you challenge somebody um, about about their views on ECT and I get I don't like to get into the the supporters or the defenders of ECT I always turn it back on to you know it doesn't matter whether you are for ECT or against ECT no doctor should be accepting harm no doctor should you know be not consenting properly every doctor should be monitoring every doctor should be accepting if a patient's been injured it, it seems bizarre that they would claim that they want the best for their patients but if they injure you you're just thrown on this heap and humiliated and that to me doesn't show one iota of care it it's contrary to everything that surely being a doctor is about so people will be listening and they'll be going, hey, Sue, how are you reconciling you being a physician with the medical system that you came up against and how it treated you? Those seem to be hard to reconcile. Yeah, I suppose. I suppose it it's made me realize the ignorance in which I operated. You know, I, 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 I thought all the protections for patients were in there. And it's made me realise that they're not in there. You know, I don't. And, and, and one of the things is that they're setting up this parliamentary group. And I believe that ECT needs to have a voice in there because, you know, they spent millions of pounds doing a review. Uh, into ECT in 2003 and they put out all these guidelines but the doctors can just ignore them and after all that work and all that money they solely relied on the integrity of the doctors involved to bring improvements and care and what psychiatrists have shown is that actually they're more concerned about protecting themselves so they 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 couldn't write um a, a consent form that actually deals with the injuries because it would be an admission of what they've been doing to people 
they can't monitor for brain damage because if they did, it would show that they've been lying. But there comes a point in history, and I, and I said this to the new president, you know, this is your moment, you're new here. Why don't you have, as your legacy, an era of openness and honesty, you know, right from the beginning, so that he hasn't got any baggage, he sort of doesn't have anything to apologise for. And instead, he's completely closed down on me, uh, won't answer any of my questions, they won't issue an apology. And we're now, I call it this post-Cumberledge era. And I think that's an opportunity for people to say, right, hands up, you know, as medics, you know, we, we've made mistakes and we have to move on. And you know, the, 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 the government actually made a statement a few years ago saying, you know, it's more important that people come up and admit that patients have been harmed and being able to stay on the register of doctors, you know, so look, we'll be, we'll sort of be, I think they were almost saying, let's, let's sort this mess out. It's almost, to me, it's a bit like when Nelson Mandela, you know, he had the peace process when, you know, everybody said the crimes that they committed, but, you know, people weren't held responsible because it was felt it was better that people, you know, it was better to try and to solve it and to bring healing. Um, and I think that's the process that, you know, Cumberledge is trying to embody. You know, this is, in, in the UK, we are quite lucky, I think, because we've had this Cumberledge report and we're now hoping to be able to, I suppose, for want of a better word, I never wanted to shame the Royal College of Psychiatrists. I wrote to them asking to be able to work with them to bring improvements in patient care. And it's quite obvious that it's not what they are about. They are far more concerned about protecting their own reputation, protecting their own backs. So, you know, the group of us that are working together now, we see this as a great opportunity because we now see what, you know, what the government is beginning to expect of doctors within the UK. So, you know, it's a, it's a big, big step forwards. And one of the other things that I've done, um, whilst, you know, I can't, I, I'm, I, we're all too late. Our injuries are so dramatic that we have a time limitation, limitation of time for taking court cases out. And because of our injuries, we are always, we've always exceeded that. So we can never get anybody to take us on. Anyhow, last year, um, working with John Reed, but I'm in regular contact with them and they feel as solicitors that Cumberledge is really going to be a bit of a game changer. And one of the things that they are looking for is also what's called a redress system. So they're beginning to take names of people who had ECT too long ago to be involved in the court case. But one of the things was from Cumberledge that, you know, so many people have suffered financially from their injuries that there must be some form of compensation scheme. So that's something in the future and it's like everything, I don't hold any hopes for it. But I've said to Andy that I'd like to have a front row seat in the trial because I want to be there for him and I want to be there with him because it shouldn't take going to court to bring changes in the way that um, you know doctors operate. The procedures are there, but the integrity isn't.
I think probably one of the last things I need to say is I know people will look at me and say, well, what's wrong with her now? You know, ECT continues to affect me on a daily basis and I will never recover from it. I don't function on an intellectual level like I used to. Obviously, me losing some IQ points still means that, you know, I can still be very intelligent and very able but I suffer with classic symptoms of neuronal fatigue, which is what a lot of head injury patients suffer from. And basically it means if I do too much, I say I've got this Apple Mac computer brain when I'm feeling okay. But if I do too much, it, it feels like a computer when you put, you know, when you put too much information in and the egg timer just goes round and round and round that's what happens to my brain. And I know it's hard to believe, but I'll get to a point when, you know, on some days, you know, cause I've done quite a lot today. I'll actually struggle to function. It'll be all I can manage to do is to get out of bed and get dressed. And I really struggle to communicate with people, you know, or, or work out how to cook a meal. I've lost a lot of my independence. I don't, I can't really travel anywhere on my own because I get very tired. And if I do, it's, you know, how do I get back? Yeah, my concern is that people look at you and think, oh, you know, look at me and think, oh, she's absolutely fine. And I'm not. It's about planning my days. So if I've got something big like this today, it's I'll suffer tomorrow for doing it. But again, I would prefer to put myself out and make myself ill doing something and feel what I've achieved in my life rather than taking the, you know, the safe passage through it and then feeling that I'm not really doing anything or achieving in life. It's just those balances. And you have a lot to learn as a brain injury patient and it can be learned. And I'm sad that most people don't get that opportunity to be able to learn how to manage their lives or manage how they're feeling. And so many of them are stuck you know, within a, within the world of psychiatry and, and can't escape it. And they're getting mental health labels thrown at them, which disables them even more, or they're getting more drugged up. That adds to the trauma of just the brain injury you've, you've you know, you've suffered. And, I, and for whatever any other patients suffer, like the mesh people or from, from drugs, I, I, I do think mental health patients who've suffered, you know, side effects from drugs like certain antidepressants or from ECT are probably the most vulnerable harmed patients because we can't escape from our doctors for want of a better word our emotional distress is just seen as a worsening of our mental health conditions and I think that's what makes us a very very unique group of people and I think that's what's made it very hard for people to come forwards because they're trapped they didn't come forwards because you know it is distressing when people don't listen to you when you make a complaint and you really can't afford to allow yourself to to get upset or to get dragged down by that failure and so you do have to pick your fights and I think that's why it's taken so long for, you know, ECT victims to, to get our voices heard because I think we're in a very unique situation and very vulnerable. And 
I know people who've killed themselves because they cannot deal with the brain injury. They don't understand it. They're not getting an understanding from their families. It's so hard when you know what's wrong with you and, and your psychiatrist are writing to your local doctor. They're called our general practitioners. And they're being told, there's nothing wrong with your patient. She's not suffering from ECT problems. You know, she's got severe mental health problems or it's her drugs. And you just can't get heard. You are at the mercy of the doctors who are supposed to be caring for you. So I think it does put us in a very unique situation because our injuries are so easy to hide and very difficult to explain to people. Yeah, it uh, really sounds like those folks are really trapped within the system where the system is causing them more harm, invalidating or dismissing their physical symptoms. I think, oh, I was going to say one thing that's really important for me and us, and I don't know if I did mention it, but one of the things how the campaign is now moving forwards is that um, we've got various members of parliament now are asking, supporting our call for an inquiry. And last week, um, MIND, which is the biggest mental health charity in the UK, has also said and made a public statement that is backing us. And so that's really good because I feel I've gone from this lone mental health patient with ECT brain damage, you know, doing articles. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm immensely grateful for, for the support of Lucy and John and Peter, who I'm working with now, because it's allowing me to achieve something and really making use of my medical career and hopefully being able to make a difference in people's lives, which I suppose going into medicine, that's what I wanted to do, you know, in the first place. And now having this backing from mind, you know, will hopefully make more and more people sit up and think that actually, you know, they are biggest spokespeople for mental health. So if they're backing it, perhaps there is something in it. And we're not calling for a ban because I think that puts too many people off. We're just calling for a review of the practices and the research. And if nothing else, if, if at least if patients are being consented properly and they're being monitored for brain damage, if that's all we achieve, then, you know, that, that is a big achievement. Absolutely. Yeah, it does sound helpful having those two other organizations backing up. Sounds like you're getting the thin edge of the wedge in there. Yeah, I know it's frustrating for people over in Canada and America because I, I, I don't think that you've got the systems in place that we do. I mean, our systems have let us down, but I think there are systems in place that we at least can hold accountable. We're a small country, so it's, you know, it's almost like you know, one of your states. Um, and I think the hope is, is that if we can really bring changes over in the UK, that, you know, it will then enable people from America and Canada and other countries will then be able to hold their governments accountable. And, you know, and just coming back to that, FDA have said that, yeah, they, they did a review of ECT. They made it more accessible to physicians. They downgraded it, which makes no sense because actually, if you read their guidelines of ECT, 
they state that patients must be warned that there is no data to support the long-term safety or efficiency of ECT. And I think most studies, even if it's for ECT, shows that, you know, the remission rates are huge. So you always have to look at the risk benefits and patients, again, must be consented. You know, short-term effects versus risks of permanent brain damage you know, it's all about balance. It's all about allowing patients to make their own judgments about what's important in, in, you know, in their lives. And I suppose there are groups and people, there's Facebook groups now. When I had my injuries, there really wasn't very much around. So there's an ECT survivors Facebook group where a lot of people go on. Um, at least you can feel that there are, you know, you're not, you're not on your own anymore. Um, and ECT manufacturers in America got sued in 2018 and they have now had to put on their, on their, as part of their side effects that it can cause permanent brain damage. And the judge ruled that, you know, basically ECT manufacturers have been lying for years and so have doctors. They've been hiding it. And what's fascinating is that even though the Royal College have admitted that, you know, one in five patients have suffered severe permanent memory loss, not one of those incidents in 2017 was reported by what's called the yellow card reporting system in the UK. So that's another issue. If these side effects aren't reported, everyone thinks that the treatment's safe. So these are all the things that Cumberledge has, has highlighted. So hopefully the mechanisms that we do have in place may become fit for purpose um, I think it's sad because I think as a doctor I thought they were fit for purpose and they're not so that's been a big learning curve for me yeah I can only imagine how shocking that must have been to discover the other side of the medical system so if folks wanted to connect with you or any of those support groups uh, how can they connect with you and I'll, I'll include the links in the show notes I, um, what I'll do is, one of the issues for us at this moment in time is that we don't have um, a support group. I got exhausted last year because when I kept doing interviews and things, people would find me, trace me, want to talk to me. And, you know, I'd have people who were really suicidal. So I think the best thing, the best place to start off really is the uh, Facebook group i'll have to, i'll send you shall i send you the link for that mm -hmm. so i think that's a place for people to find some community i also think that there is some very good information on head injury at um, the charity called headways in the uk so you, at least people can start reading about it perhaps pass it on to members of their family so that members of their family can try and start getting an understanding of what it feels like to have, have, have a head injury. I would also push people or suggest to people that they try and get themselves neuropsychology, that's ology, not psychiatrist, neuropsychology review. And what they can do is they can do a battery of cognitive functioning tests and they will be able to you know tell you if you've you know got deficiencies in various areas and then hopefully 
offer you support. I think within the UK, uh, occupational therapists, I don't know if you have those where you are, but they have a, a lot to do with people with head injury. So one of the things that we're trying to do at this moment is we're working with the UK Acquired Brain Injury Foundation. They're discussing us at their meeting in September because what the Royal College, as I've said, have failed to do is offer support groups or clinics for people, as opposed to the Royal College of Gynecologists and Obstetricians who have set up support clinics throughout the UK. Um, so I, I feel really awful but I can't cope emotionally dealing with, you know, everybody else who's struggling with head injury, the best that I can do. And that's hard for me because I don't like the idea that there's people distressed, but at this moment in time, the best thing I can do is try and bring this change so that the people who are damaged can get the support that they need. It doesn't sit comfortably with me as the type of person that I am, but, it got too exhausting trying to support, you know, to support people. So you can find me on Twitter. Again, I'll give you, I'll send you that link as well, because if you start getting onto the Twitter conversations, you'll, you know, you'll, you'll see that there's quite a lot of people who are injured on there. There's a group, quite a regular group of injured patients on there, you know, who will respond nicely to you. There are also a group of psychiatrists on there who aren't so pleasant. And, you know, I've been told that I'm mistaken about my brain injury. So that's the best ways. I think Facebook, Twitter and support from Headways just to get information to get you, you know, foot in the door. And there's a very good book as well that I would recommend about brain injury. And it was written sort of by patients and families for patients and families and I think as you go through there, I was given that at the end of my counselling with my neuropsychologist. And I liked the fact that I got the book at the end of my two or three years rehabilitation with him. Because instead of finding a book and fitting myself to that book, I discovered myself and my injuries. And I read that book and thought, that's me. So... I thought that was a healthy way of doing it, but I'm lucky because I had that opportunity to do it that way. But if you don't have that opportunity to have neuropsychological input and neuro rehabilitation to help you learn how your brain lets you down and all the strategies that you need to develop, I think it's a useful book to read. There are sections of it that you don't even have to look at because a lot of people had obviously physical injuries from their brain injuries, which I didn't really, but I think it, ex it explains a lot of the problems that people do face with head injury. And obviously you can hand that over to relatives and say, well, actually, can you read this? Because this is, this is me. I can't explain it, but this is me. And it's very easy to read. So I'll, I'll email you. I'll, I'll uh, message you those links and the, the title of that book. Yeah. It's definitely worth a read. Um, and I think the hardest thing is you can't understand what's going on in your own brain because it's, you know, something you've never experienced before. And therefore you can't tell other, other people what you're experiencing or how to explain it. And once you start understanding yourself, I think that, you know, as I said, that's a real key to getting better. And 
starting to live again and, and that's what upsets me most is that these people can't get better because their injuries are injuries are denied and they don't understand what's going on in their heads um and i think it's destroyed a lot of families because of it it changes often changes the person that you are and a lot of people have struggled with that well sue it's uh been incredibly enlightening and frightening to hear your story I, and I no doubt that there'll be some people who've had EC2, ECT who will be identifying with your experience so it'll be very helpful for them and then there'll be other people who have yet to be offered ECT and they'll be more informed about whether or not to make that decision. I think it's important for me to say I'm not saying don't have it I think that if you are going to have it my advice would be make sure that you are fully aware of the damage that could happen to you. Are you prepared to have your life torn apart? Don't believe them when they say that, oh, it doesn't happen with modern ECT because it does. And it is Russian roulette. So have you tried absolutely everything? Because it does seem to be very much doctor preference those units that offer it less must be offering things must be successfully offering psychology and i know that it was psychology input that that, that eventually saved me and then you want to know you know what's their how are they monitoring for you what tests are they using and you want the evidence to know that those tests are that those tests are the right tests and you want to know you know will they stop it and if they turn around to you and say oh we've never had anybody that served has, has suffered any form of brain damage to me that's a red flag you know if they're claiming they've never seen anybody with brain damage that's because they're not looking for it and i think that's what most research shows is that they're not looking for it so i would be far more willing to go to a to an ECT unit that says yes we do have people they are damaged but we monitor and we stop our ECT and if you are damaged you know you'll be seen immediately behind your neuropsychologist and we will offer you rehabilitation so you want to know what rehabilitation you'll be offered so all I all I can say is go in there with your eyes open and don't I'm not saying don't have it you know because that would be wrong of me because there are people who say that it's helped them but please go in there with your eyes completely and utterly open and ask the right questions yeah that's so important thanks sue and and thanks for taking the the cognitive energy i know it'll deplete you and you'll have to rest hard for the rest of today so thank you for that all right thanks scott well, a big thanks to Susan for sharing her experiences as a physician being treated within the psychiatric element of the medical model and what she's doing to increase awareness around ECT and the brain damage that it can cause and changing the way the healthcare system treats patients with mental illness or at least those who have been given a diagnosis of a mental illness. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Be kind to yourself, be kind to others. You can support the podcast by subscribing on iTunes, Podbean, Spotify, and all of the other podcast platforms. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron 
premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast interviews. Simply go to patreon.com slash medical error interviews to become a monthly patron of the podcast. And if you need the support of an experienced counselor for your own encounters with medical error and or living with a complex chronic illness, you can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com.